Hello and welcome to the Goldsmiths BA Design Podcast. You are listening to our group series in which students from the third year collaborate to tackle a short brief each week, demonstrating the breadth of their making processes and critical thinking. So, if this floats your boat, follow the channel and stay tuned to listen to our upcoming group and individual episodes. But for now, here's a recording. Hello listeners, Uh, we are here today to do the um, brief Hey, look, I found something. Uh, my name is Jack, and I'm here with Stan Wisdom Casey, Sophie Paul, and Emily Blake. Um, we have all recently just finally completed our Vivas. They're now all out of the way. Um, they have all been great fun and full of many ups and downs, as we all know. Yeah, definitely thumbs up moment. Um, <laughs> so, yes, we're here to do the brief Hey, look, I found something. In this brief, uh, we have each brought a fact or anecdote or truth or lie or dare or strange thing um, to the table which we have discovered through doing our project research and we're each gonna pull it apart a little bit talk about what that fact uh, how that fact influenced our our project work and where it's from and um, go from there it should be fun okay the first fact we're going to start off with is Sophie Paul hello um so the thing I've brought along is a book that got recommended to me by my tutor, sort of towards the latter end of the project, but it's called Theory of the Young Girl. And it's a kind of um, loose collection of fragments sort of building up a theory of a sort of young girlified society. And what I thought was really interesting about it is that right at the beginning, it, um, it explains how the young girl is a non-gendered concept. So I thought I'd read just a little bit explaining what that means. So it goes, listen, the young girl is obviously not a gendered concept. In reality, the young girl is simply the model citizen as redefined by consumer society since World War I in explicit response to the revolutionary menace. As such, the young girl is a polar figure orienting rather than dominating outcomes. That's really interesting. Can can you, hi, this is Stan. Um, Sophie, can you explain what that quote means to you? Could you pull that quote apart a little bit? Yeah. so what that meant to me, so I've spent my, this year sort of investigating the rom-com as a sort of staple of pop culture and something that young girls grow up like watching and learning about love from. Um, so what this book essentially is, is like the theory of that young girl, but it's pulled it apart insofar as the young girl isn't like a nine-year-old girl child. It's She's a kind of representation of a mass consumer-led society insofar as the young girl and her intimacy is sort of not this personal phenomenon it's not about emotion but it's about um like mass consumed intimacy and it's about value rather than i guess like value in consumerism rather than like love um but that was really interesting just because it sort of picks apart the world in which the rom-com sits in as a mass consumed storyline rather than a picture of like messy love and like messy bodies coming together and is and is that the depiction of intimacy that you focused on in the work you've made kind of yeah yeah i think so it's um i think the picture of intimacy that i've tried to build up is something that's written in rapid response so it and sort of i ran a bunch i ran a bunch of writing workshops where it was sort of you build up a picture of a rom-com that's written collectively rapidly and there's a lot of kind of bodily language and there's a lot of sort of quite intense and quite smutty qualities to it that's a lot less about like falling in love with a storyline that someone in Hollywood's written for you and it's a lot more about 
something that's slightly corrupted woven throughout sort of everyday banalities. When, when was this book written? You... This book was written, I think it was originally written in French. Oh, okay. At some point, but this translation was in 2012, it says. I don't know when oh, it was okay. actually written to begin with, but it's by, um, it's by Tiquan, who I think are a sort of pretty sort of radical publishing house. Um, but yeah, and it's a really mad book. It's kind of written in fragments the whole way through, apart from the introduction, and it's just kind of explaining different, explaining in different sort of little parts this. And sort of, it's not really a theory, it's just like, it's like a collection of stanzas, I guess. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So it's kind of in this way that it's about, there's a part, I think, I can't quite remember in the stanza that you read out, it talks about, mm -hmm. can you repeat, repeat the last bit of that again? So yeah, so it goes, in reality, the young girl is simply the model citizen as redefined by consumer society. So okay, something about that like, seems kind of like it's sort of something to do with, I don't know, I get this sense of like a sort of falsified image of the, what is the young girl or something which is like, almost well, I mean, like it's non-existent um, apart from the things which are sort of surrounding. So I suppose, yeah, I suppose it's the idea of a model citizen as, defi as defined by consumer society and it's describing, I guess, like personal worth and personal experience in narrative down to like a set of like raw values which is really interesting because then you're looking at I mean in terms of looking at the rom-com then you're looking at this kind of mass you know cultural it's a piece of like mass cultural heritage essentially um and it's absolute trash for a lot of it but it's also something that you're looking at now according to a set of values rather than you know a set of values and like what it made in the box office and stuff and it's um and that's really interesting to look at when it's such a staple that lots of people learn about love from so it's um yeah I guess that's really interesting in terms of thinking about like what love is to you as a person and then thinking about value on top of that. That is interesting could, could you could you take it out of the abstract a little bit and sort of describe what we currently uh, collectively see the young girl as a sort of description of the young girl mm. in these sort of popular media depictions that we see? I suppose um, in, in uh, terms of I guess popular TV mm. and, and rom-coms you know the young girl would be a pretty there's like you know a pretty woman and I and so sort of, I don't know it's she's I guess she's a slightly um hopeless figure slightly kind of subordinate figure maybe um but also it's the idea that like she's she's an object and she's an impression rather than like a body that like leaks and sort of trembles and does all these disgusting things and I think you never see that in you never see that in sort of mass consumed intimacies because you're looking at a value and you're looking at a kind of a skin I suppose Reese Weatherspoon's sort of really fucking cool speech she does when she's talking about her production company and she's kind of speaking about she kind of produces movies where the women do things and they don't say things like oh well what do we do next <laughs> so it's the idea of having like I guess a figure that's led by her own self rather than a kind of facade of society I suppose yeah it reminds me a little bit of like what some psychotherapists often sometimes talk about uh, in terms of people kind of imposing their values onto you so this is one thing that one one explanation which is partially given to things like um the idea of the honeymoon periods that point when like to like a, a couple are very much enamored with each other and there comes a point when that kind of dies off and it's almost like this this stage from being like have been like imposing all of your values and your desires and your beliefs about yourself onto that other person and the point when you actually learn what that other person is 
and it kind of I think there's something in that in terms of like what maybe society does anyway is it lots of people imposing what they kind of want of others from themselves onto them um, until you actually learn that people are very complex and not at all what you thought they were in the end I think it kind of reminds me of that yeah I mean I think what's um in terms of if you're thinking about looking at how people relate to the rom-com I think there's definitely an element I think there's definitely an element of that in there where you sort of I don't know like you build up a picture of love through as a young girl you I, I did this like you build up a picture of love through a rom-com and then you kind of wait for that to recreate itself in real life and uh you know like whatever that and then I guess what this project has been about and what theory of the young girl has been quite interesting at painting is like what happens when you reclaim or like what happens when you're like when you digest that and pull that apart and then reclaim that material as a space for yourself like making space for imperfection and messiness and excess and all these things you don't really see in like rom-com love and the clean rom-com love very nice thank you very much sophie yeah you're welcome um, uh, we'll now move on to our next fact which is stan Okay, so my fact, uh, which is actually uh, somewhat tangential to my project, it didn't really inform my work, but it came from my work, um, is that whenever you fill in one of those I'm not a robot capture forms online, um, not only are you proving that you're a human, you are also doing unpaid labour for Google. That's my fact. <laughs> so where, where, did you, where did you get this from? Um, I actually saw this in a YouTube video from an engineer that I was watching uh, when I was looking into um, military uses of algorithms, but it is, it is tangential to that. It's actually, uh, and also I've read an article more recently on it, um, but sh shall I get into it? Shall I get into what that means? Get um, into it. Yeah. Get into it. So essentially those capture forms, um, capture is a really bad um, acronym actually, which stands for um, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll look it up while I'm saying the rest of it, but it's yeah. um, essentially the capture forms are, they show you in the original sort of early 2000s, they would show you a word that is somewhat, or it's actually a string of letters and numbers that are slightly warped um, and would ask you to say what they are because computers weren't powerful enough to interpret what those letters and numbers were, if you remember the early ones. Um, and they quickly became um, two words next to each other. Um, um, do, do, do we all remember this? Because they're different now and I'll get onto that. But do we remember when they were like the two words with like a cross through or something like that? Um, yeah, vaguely. Yeah. It's yeah, because uh, clever students at Carnegie Mellon University worked out that they could use humans as data farms, essentially, uh, in Google's book digitization program. So what would happen is these capture forms would show you one word used to verify whether you're a human or not. And then another one, which is a word that Google was struggling with identifying in a book. Um, and it would be just a warped version of that image. And so the human was essentially clever. doing, it's very clever actually. So it meant that um, I think uh, the fact was something around, I think 440 million words were, were uh, verified by humans in the first month of doing this. Um, and, and so and essentially they were just outsourcing the digitization program because um, OCRs, I think it's optical something really, basically the programs that read text and or read images of text and recognize what that text is. Um, they were only sort of, they would make mistakes about 20% of the time. And by using this sort of outsourcing projects, they could get it to 99.1% of text recognized in the digitization project, which is a lot better, obviously. Um, and the, it, it's, it's really cool, isn't it? It's like, yeah. I mean, it's, 
it gets slightly more like so that was capture version one or recapture was the human version or the human outsourcing version and then capture version two and I don't know if you remember this I didn't remember this but there was a point where they would show you a word and then a number that looks specific like specific suspiciously like someone's door number on their house do you remember that ever I never I can't remember seeing that but um but what and but that was people's door numbers on their houses because it was google maps working out addresses so they were like any address right. that they located on their street view that they couldn't work out they would outsource to humans to tell them what number house it was <laughs> so so that was more human outsourcing and the current one which you probably will have seen is um asking you to work out if something's a fire hydrant or a street sign or a yeah, road how many mm. how many traffic lights in this yeah. image etc yeah. yeah exactly that sort of thing that is because google's parent company is uh developing uh, driverless cars and so you're essentially verifying what driverless car computer vision is seeing on the roads so that and uh, there's a that's slightly speculative because that information hasn't been made completely public by the company but the the speculation is that people are it's not it's not training the ai to recognize these things it's just verifying the ai's decisions that's what people think that is mm. which is so cool it's really cool and a little bit scary and that's what my fact is scary <laughs> Seeing online now, yeah, Capture stands for. It is a very odd algorithm. Uh, oh, have you got it there? Yeah, acronym. Yeah, go completely, on. It's completely automated public Turing test to tell computers and humans apart. <laughs> very long. <laughs> oh my god! Is, yeah. Saying essentially just perfect. <laughs> yeah, essentially so the, just artificial and, intelligence. And and the original reason for its development was um, so that because bots online um, were able to do like one of the sort of prime examples is. Um, they wanted to stop people from creating bots to buy tickets on for events and things like that. So you have to prove that you're a human and actually going through the process of engaging with a website. So, um, so that's why they came about. But then these uh, sort of student researchers at Carnegie Mellon decided that that was a lot of processing power going to waste. In the, do you know what they, there's another fact, do you know what they call humans, like sort of human processing in these sort of tech spheres? Because there's software, no. software, hardware, and if a human's doing the work, it's wetware. Which I think uh, is oh, that's gross. <laughs> yeah, that's horrible. Oh, but that, that is, makes sense yeah. in some ways. Well, well it kind of no, does. Only yeah. as much as software. Only as much yeah. as software makes sense. It's yeah, interesting. It's almost simple. it's almost similar to like um I'm sure there's like a proper academic name for it, but it's almost like micro labor or something, where it's the same thing as like, you know, when you go to Saintsbury's and you use like the self-service checkouts. Yeah. And then you're essentially doing like labor for Saintsbury's for five minutes. Yeah. yeah. In yeah. a weird way. And it's like my mum made an interesting parallel to actually uh, an old bit, and I really, I don't have the references for this because she didn't either, but an old bit of feminist literature from her days at uni that was talking about how um, uh, paying women for housework would change the approach to what that what is meant by that in labour terms because it mm. modifies it to some extent. And we're kind of going through a sort of reverse process of that by being the outsourced bits of labour, being essentially doing what is mm. extremely... Um, extremely difficult or or hard or sort of take labor that takes a long time for a single algorithm to do to process what sort of neural uh, networks and ai training requires a lot of um a lot of data and a lot of time but if you just make millions of people around the world do it do two seconds of it each day then you, you are crowdsourcing your your AI training, mm. essentially. So that's what they're doing. And there's there's an ethical journal that I came across today when looking into this fact that was talking about the ethics of making people do that labour, which is quite interesting. Mm. References and description. <laughs> well, nice. Yeah. You know you were saying about the feminist literature. Mm. So Bill the Technician came to me about like um, during World War One, uh, housewives were able to like paint tin soldiers for like pennies a week, but because um, you know inequality, um, they 
it kind of gave them some financial power so it's like a good thing but also a bad thing because it was cheap labor labor mm. yeah i don't know if it's that thing probably not but close probably related yeah yeah similar sort of thing it all comes from that same source of uh, just um yeah segregating the workforce and in a sense it kind of then translated into this very easily translated into this online realm i suppose with things like capture where you know kind of um in this like isolated space uh you know even you know just simple things like whatever we would use capture for things like um like logging into websites and that kind of thing yeah. um yeah that's all i had on that <laughs> <laughs> no it's it, yeah it's it's, it is interesting in terms of labor because it's it it's uh it's sort of work alienation it touches on those sorts of things but it's also un, unknown labor it's, it's uh, micro labor to some extent and uh, it's it almost doesn't matter to each individual but the fact that it's happening on mass is um it, there are there are definitely ethical complaints about it for sure mm. yes <laughs> definitely they're, they're there <laughs> the concerns very nice thank you very much stan yes um yeah now we'll move on to the next fact which i believe was my fact Okay, let's go. Okay. Uh, yeah, so this is something that I uh, found very intriguing while I was carrying out my research into um, uh, the sort of the histories of gardening. And um, it was when I was doing some research at the, uh, the Garden Museum in Lambeth. And um, they have some really, really odd things there, like tools and all these kind of stuff um, in the history of gardening. And uh, I came across this, um, this thing in a, in a bell jar, which is like, it's, it's a sort of very woolen looking, like, kind of ragged thing about the size of it's about maybe like a, a foot long maybe a bit less and it's got these kind of four sticks like jutting out of the bottom of it and it's sort of like weird looking head and it's called the vegetable lamb of tartary and that the, bit. it's a bit <laughs> weird and it's got this it, like, i looked into it more it's got this whole like thing behind it which is sort of tied in myth and just essentially people um getting the wrong end of the stick all the way through like the last two thousand years or so um so what it is is uh Basically, when this goes back to a guy called uh, Sir John Mandeville in the 1300s, who was like the, 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 the real life um, Gulliver from Gulliver's Travels. He used to go around traveling the world, um, European, and he'd come back to Europe and he had all these great stories, wrote them down the book about all these great things he'd seen. Um, and uh, yeah, he said he, he, he basically saw this, um, this thing called a, what he called a, a vegetable lamb. And it was this 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 thing with um, it sort of had a uh, umbilical cord stem, so it was part lamb, part plant. If you imagine, they've got drawings of it, and this lamb is just sitting on top of this like vertical stem, and it like is eating all the vegetation around it, and it's like it's got um, white wool, and people were like, "Oh, John Mandeville, like you're so cool. You you know so many things. You've seen so much cool stuff. Like have a knighthood. You're you're brilliant." <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, He'd never actually, like, it turned out he'd never actually seen these things. Right. So he claimed he, had, he never actually had. Um, but then through, just through steaming history, high the entire time. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, he'd been to a lot of places, so he'd found a lot of interesting things. Um, and this was also a time when um, Europe had just started trading with uh, uh, continents like Asia, and they were getting a lot of, like, um, clothing, garments and things. And they were wearing this newfangled material, which resembled this kind of, this, this, this plant, this sort of, this wool. That they believed was from this plant, the vegetable lamb, this this part plant, part uh, flesh and blood creature, uh, and then it wasn't until the 1500s when this um, Renaissance Italian polymath called what was he Giordano Cardano, I believe, 
think I've written that right. Um, and he essentially said that, no, this, this vegetable land thing, this can't be true. And the only reason he said it couldn't be true, not because it was, you know, anything else, but the fact that the soil would not be warm enough for the land to grow. Of course, yeah. <laughs> that was his, that was his reasoning. It's just brilliant. Um, and then where, where this, um, this object that I found in the, the, the garden museum, um, they call the, it's called the baromets or baromets pun, punny. Um, and it was presented to the Royal Society in the uh, 1500s by a guy called Sir Hans Sloan and Sir Hans Sloan founded, helped to found the places like the British Museum and the Natural History Museum because he brought a lot of like objects from the places that he visited. And he presented this thing to the Royal Society and he said, this might be it. This might be the thing that we've been looking for for centuries, this vegetable lamb. Look at it. Like, it looks so strange. And people were like, no, it can't be. Because it's, it's like they said the vegetable lamb was white. This thing's brown. And what they it turned out this thing was, was actually kind of the manufactured creation of uh, rhizomes from a um, type of uh, fern, which is um, indigenous to uh, East Asia. So this, this, this kind of fern is like found everywhere. And the rhizomes are basically like the roots. So it's very like coarse like furry thing with these big sticks coming out of it which look like weirdly like some kind of lamb like if you saw it you think oh that looks like a vegetable and a lamb that <laughs> that must be it so the, la the lamb so vegetable was a vegetable it was a it was a it was a type of fern but but this is the this is the like the the really odd thing about this whole kind of myth around this thing is that they they realized that this this thing had kind of been falsified so so Hans Sloan was criticized for that um but it didn't take a, a few, again, a few years later in the 1800s, where there's a lot of people involved in this story. Like, there's, this, <laughs> there's this naturalist called Henry Lee who finally found um, what he thought might have explained the, the vegetable lamb with its long stem and its uh, white wool. Uh, and it was the cotton plant. And he found oh, yeah. the cotton plant in you know, what was this area in Tartary, which was the old name region of what is now Russia. And people in the middle ages had been getting a lot of cotton but not knowing where it had come from they just assumed it was like wool and then so interestingly what kind of ties all this together is that this is a possible explanation for why they use we use now the slightly incorrect term cotton wool because the oh, two okay. things are not at all related but yeah, yeah. that's right um, i never thought of that ah. that's yeah, really yeah. cool there's okay. this whole myth around it this like one little thing that we still hold on to it's like <laughs> That's just that's just a, one of those very very common uh, class divide stories from that era. Whereby, <laughs> if any of these aristocrats had just asked the labourers that were chopping the plant down at any point yeah. what it was, <laughs> then they would have found that out a lot earlier. Yeah. Well, they said they didn't sure. used to go near them. They couldn't go near the vegetable lamb because it would kill you. So they used to have oh, to. The yeah. natives would like have to aim at it with bow and arrow, and then they would be able to eat the flesh, which tasted like crab meat. Apparently, <laughs> none of this makes any sense at any level. Well, it's just lots of tied stories, right? I imagine yeah. it's just lots of different things. It's yeah, like just folk lots tale, of so. folk tales. Passing That's down so for a really early time, actually, um, Alexander the Great and the Greeks in the fourth century, I think, found found cotton. Were the earliest to find cotton, and they had, I think, the an old term for cotton was the word melon, and melon was also similar to a word which meant sheep. That's interesting. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna really show myself up here, but there's a Spanish word, melcotón or melcotón. Speak amongst yourselves. I'm just gonna look this up. More <laughs> etymology there. Oh, oh, that okay. So I don't know why that's really. It's almost definitely not related, but maybe it is. Um, melocoton is um, peach in Spanish. Okay. 
Yeah, it sounds Sorry. like there's an etymological <laughs> link there. Maybe not. Yeah, but maybe not. Yeah. Okay, that's really cool. Well, Fruits and veg. Yeah, well, what strange, what strange tale. Yeah. There must um, be so many like that that you, I'm sure you've come across in your oh, life. Oh yeah. Of mistaken identity. Yeah, and also I can't quite think of any directly from the work related to, to, to gardening. I think what was specific about this was that it interested me in my project generally because I quite like I quite like any sort of stories like that which are to do with like the liminality between what's sort of fiction and what's reality. And my project was kind of all about that in the end, like the mythology of John Evelyn's Lost Garden in Deptford and the fact this was actually a real place and and this sort of liminality between what is like um, flesh and what is like plants, I think is really strange. Um, yeah, it's like a really nice uh, metaphor for most of your projects, to some extent, this one story. Yeah. Okay, nice. So um, we Cheers, move Jack. on to our, thank you, thank you. We'll move on to our final fact, which is Emily. Hello. I haven't really said much in this, but I, Hi, Emily. Um, <laughs> I just looked at, I googled a uh, vegetable sheep, and it, I just don't understand how someone's like, yeah, no, that's definitely a sheep. <laughs> is it the one it's the barometer the, the the fern which is like has a weird it's got weird legs yeah i, uh, oh, well, I mean they don't really have specs like this back then so fair enough. um so my fact is more quite broad um i think the biggest fact of all um is how ignorant i am or was um and how blinded i was by like microaggressions towards like race um and yeah i've got a little example here because i noticed everyone else had an example so oh. this is l germany that um came out in november last year um and the title is back to black um which is lovely um and there's pages like this where the model is completely blacked out with this like kind of witchy structure type of thing um and portrayed in like a mystical forest next to it um and the caption is voodoo child so it's just mm. like yeah i just um she's like one of these little things that fashion is like do you know what brown people are cool now let's let's make that trendy by supporting the previous signals around it i'm shocking at talking about one project but yeah um we also got to give emily some credit she has just finished her fiver <laughs> So she's, so <laughs> she's literally is, about an hour ago. But that is appalling. Let's just start there. I think, and also, I, what I didn't realise is, I mean, first of all, first inference is why is why is it has it taken me to like the last year of uni to realise the reasons why people treat people of colour differently when it's like this like the simplest of things which I've just like completely dismissed because I'm like cool, it's just like a everyday thing. Um, yeah. I think it's interesting that you fra like you framed this like in this podcast. You said um, my fact is that I was ignorant. I think it's interesting that you're saying it. I just think that the, the framing of it as a fact that you're ignorant, this sort of like undisputable thing, might be quite interesting to unpack. Like, why do you think why do you think that is? Um, I think I think me finding out that I was really well, not really. Oh, I'm just ignorant. Um, was the most shocking thing because there's like one thing knowing you're not racist but then acknowledging racism is like a whole thing that I didn't even think was a thing um and acknowledging like my own stigmas I had of say like protesters and stuff um 
because I started this being like, I don't want to be another angry brown woman um, because, I mean, the way protesters are like portrayed in the media is, has like clearly had an impact on how I viewed protesting and protesting for like, I mean, like Black Lives Matter at the moment. Um, and it's just a shame that I don't like, I was worried for people to be like, oh, or it's just another racism thing going on, just another racism project. Um, yeah. because I knew I had those feelings about like race marches and stuff or like feminist marches for that matter um, because in my foundation year um, that was the first time I like got exposed to feminism and everyone was like printing their tits on walls and I was like yeah but there's literally like girls in third world countries who can't get an education because they're a girl I don't understand why that's important and not even knowing that's like how things are just interlinked and intersectionality really um yeah yeah sorry heavy topic everyone i think, I think it's topic, important but... to, to just like insert very quickly that we are recording this in the midst of uh the what, what's the date it's what is it With, you know oh, the, 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 yeah the 12th of june uh, 2020 in the midst of the uh, black lives matter protests across the globe after uh, the death mm. of george the murder of george floyd um, so just a very quick one, if you can do, if you can donate or support in any way, uh, wherever you are in the world, brilliant, please do. Just as a quick note, I think it's important to say when we're on this topic. So. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you can do. But, yeah, sorry, Sophie, you were going to come in on that? Um, yeah, and I didn't realise the institutions around me helped me build this insecurity about myself. And I think that's where I had this disconnect with my like Asian side, because, I mean, you guys have known me for a few years now and I've always like I mean I still do it now which I kind of shouldn't but you know I uh, use humor to deflect my feelings um, and I was just played on this stereotype of an Asian which I knew I could never be because I've never been to the Philippines um, and today I've only just found out that it's like the Philippines Independence Day today and also my independent hey. from university apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yes but yeah um, I think I've always been scared of not knowing that side of me and then wanting to be mm. white and then um reflecting on how my peers viewed me and how i viewed myself from that um like oh my god this is so gross but in secondary school when i was trying to chirp a guy i was like <laughs> i feel bad for him because i don't want the guys thinking oh he's talking to the brown girl so oh god. yeah um when i just you know carried on with my daily life and thought like I mean, this is like a gender thing as well, like um, blonde hair, blue eyes, it's just like a jelly mold of the perfect human. Um, and I didn't have, well, we did have like people kind of teachers in our schools, but they would be just picked on, bullied by students and uh, parents. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just a lot of realising how everything has just constructed my and do you think that a sort of rejection of um, identifying with your sort of your, your your cultural heritage has caused you to to have that reactionary thing where you say not another angry brown person is that like is that where yeah, you think I that think comes from that's, I think that's like whiteness coming into play um, okay. I mean I grew up in a very Tory area mm -hmm. um, so yeah I've always been taught like oh close the borders you know immigrants are coming to take our jobs um, and 
that was just the people I was surrounded by. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think schools are doing, you know, all that they can to support um, like racist incidents. And I think Agreed. it's complete mm-hmm. bullshit that they say that they need to, you know, obviously they need to take all the boxes to get kids the grades that they need. But thinking about all the piss take like history lessons I've had, or like even teaching about slavery and not mentioning the importance of like white privilege, like just slip it in there because you're just saying like, okay, this happened in the past. That's it. Oh, Martin Luther King, that, you know, that happened. Um, so it kind of puts this conception that it doesn't really happen now and we just should all be colorblind, which is another issue. So, yeah. yeah. So I think, um, sorry, Stan, you go. No, 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 no I was Oh yeah, let you say you had more of a formed sentence than I did. <laughs> I was just to say, like it's it's um, it's really really interesting to hear you say these things, and I think it's really interesting in the context of, like Stan was saying earlier, what's happening today because there's a lot of discourse in the media and online about people suddenly realizing, like how ignorant they were and how much work there is still left to do, and it's a sort of almost bittersweet thing where suddenly people are saying we're going to put in the work, um. And you hope they're sincere, but then it's also like, why is it taken this long? Like, why is it taken yeah. this long to recognise that the school curriculum isn't doing enough and that sort of, you know, massive multinationals aren't doing enough and us as individuals aren't doing enough. And it's, um, so I think, I think also like, maybe your feeling can be echoed in like all of us and a lot of society right now and that like there's a fu- like, fucking lot of work to do. Um, yeah, I think I think on that and in the context of this, like uh, with your fact, for example, like it might be well, if, uh, it might be a lot of sort of um, labour to do it. But it would be interesting if you could talk through having sort of come to that realisation, if you've had any sort of what your sort of set of steps have been to acknowledge your own ignorance. And if there have been any ways that you've been working on it or dealing with it, that might be quite interesting for the context of this. It's just a lot of reading, basically, yeah. and like a lot of watching YouTube videos. Um, and like at the start, I had this thing like, well, I'm not a big reader, um, nor do I, I really enjoy reading. But I think like if you can even take like what ten minutes to read or listen to a podcast or watch a video or whatever, then you're you know helping yourself to understand something that you mm. can never fully understand. And yeah, it's just like take up ten minutes when it's literally people have been dealing with it through centuries like surely you have 10 minutes yeah it's about being active right actually and i think it's like it's i think it's maybe related to this thing of like being yeah like being proactive yourself and educating yourself rather than going and asking like a person of color to do the work for you and explain it for you because it's almost like like every hour that you spend educating yourself is an hour that a person of color doesn't have to Mm. doesn't have to spend doing that when actually that's something that and you should absolutely take responsibility. What I see happens quite a lot. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So I think, I think to hear you say those things could definitely be, yeah, reflected in, yeah, all of us and a lot of what's happening in society right now. So, sick. I think yeah. it's um, it's interesting to unpick like some of the things you're talking about in terms of uh, some of the myths behind, say, um, uh, the history of immigration and the. A lot of the you, you talked about kind of how a lot of your views might have been imposed upon you by the kind of area you've grown up in and the sort of political views that might have grown around that. And we hear it all the time in certain sort of uh, more right wing media platforms that there needs to be more control on immigration and all these kind of things. But in a book I've been reading recently by uh, 
Danny Dawling, um, he, who uh, works, uh, yeah, basically he's a professor of geography at Oxford. And he's written a lot of books about like um, things about inequality. He wrote a book about inequality in the 1%. And in this book, he's written on uh, slow down, the end of the great acceleration. There's an interesting point he makes about um, how the figures that we often kind of see publicized in the media about things like immigration are blown a lot of out of proportion because they don't look at the the wider kind of scale of how uh, historically um, things like population growth actually tend to fluctuate between periods of slowing down and speeding up. So what you have, for example, in the current times we're living in is that people say fret about the number of people who are coming onto quote this small island, but actually there's been around an equal amount of people sort of a couple of generations before us that either didn't have children or had children much later and so what you get is actually the people who come to come to the United Kingdom merely replace the people who weren't here in the first place. And actually what you have is a number of a population that stays relatively the same for the last, you know, 50 to 100 years, give or take, like maybe a decade, it goes up a little bit, goes down a little bit. And I just think those kind of statistics become interesting when you talk about like ideas of prejudice and where that comes from and how a lot of it is just really poor um, understanding of of. Of, of history and statistics really like, which has been circulated constantly and i think it's been circulated in like the most accessible form of media because it comes to another like class thing um as well it's yeah yeah but yeah, yeah exactly well thank you very thank you very much emily that was yeah, good thank you thank you, you, thank you everyone yeah all great stuff learned a lot hope the listeners have learned a lot from those very diverse interesting facts and um hear more from our, our individual projects and the projects of our cohort uh, which are all going to be on the hey look something is happening website coming out soon and um more from these podcasts and the instagram and uh, stay tuned for the live events which will be during the goldsmith's ba design third year degree show week of the 22nd of june hope to hear from you soon and goodbye cheers everyone bye, bye. thank you for listening if you have any questions about this week's podcast feel free to send them over to badshowpodcast20 at gmail.com. Tune in next week, but if you can't wait, head over to our individual series or step into our YouTube studios at Bad Isolation to get more of an insight into our lives of our third-year design students at Goldsmiths. But for now, stay safe and goodbye.